it occurred to me as I was pondering how to do the rest of Revelation that we might depart from the typical way people go through Revelation. Usually people study Revelation verse by verse. And that's what we've been doing up to now because there was no reason to, to do it any other way while we were looking at the seven letters. But now that we're in the second half of Revelation, I think it's really a tale of two stories. I think the first, one of the stories, and the story we're going to start with today, is a story of judgment. Revelation has 21 big judgments in it. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven plagues, or bowls of wrath. And those seem to be a story in and of themselves, and I don't think those are necessarily directed at believers, okay? For, they're directed at unbelievers, the whole first part of which is to try to, even though they're under judgment, is to try to get them to recognize that God is God and turn to Him. The later ones, it's kind of almost too late. The, the judgments are so severe, and, peop, and men have hardened their hearts, as we'll see, that, that they're not going to change their minds. Some of these judgments that we're going to study, I think the believers that are here on earth at that time will suffer the consequences of those because they're going to be widespread geographic kind of, of things that happen. So unless an individual was supernaturally protected at that moment, they would you know, be subject to the earthquake or whatever it was. On the other hand, several of them that we study are in our spiritual, they are supernatural judgments and are individual in their application. And there's some in here that specifically say the believers are not going to be harmed by. You, they're very spectacular and they're very dramatic judgments. And people tend to spend a lot of time on them. But I think if you focus on those in your study of Revelation, you miss the bigger message and the bigger story of the power between the struggle between the powers of good and evil. And so I want to separate those two stories and study the judgments first and just kind of go through them because they are what they are. There's not a lot of interpretation to do. And then in the in the last part of our study, which will depending on how far we get today, it'll be either starting next week or the week after, we will focus on the whole rest of the story, which covers the struggle between God and Satan from the very beginning to the very end. And in that study, I will try to put it in what I believe the scripture would, would support as the chronological sequence. Okay? Because Revelation, when you read it, is written a lot like a novel. If you've ever read a Tom Clancy novel or a Gresham novel or any of this, these kind of suspense, action-filled novels, they'll have several story threads that all tie up together at the end. That is exactly what Revelation is. And when an when a, a, a author tells that story, he'll tell you know, storyline one, and then he'll come back and he'll tell storyline two, and then he'll skip over here and tell storyline four, and then at the end, they kind of all converge. Well, that's exactly how Revelation is written. And so if you go through it verse by verse, you can get all confused and mix up 
storyline one and storyline four because they're all jumbled in there together. So I'm going to try to do them sequentially for you. And I'll let you know, obviously, like I always do when I think that there's wiggle room there um, for, for a different interpretation. So why don't we start with Revelation chapter 6. When we finished up last week, we stopped where God had a scroll in his right hand. And the scroll was written on the inside, on the outside, and it was sealed with seven seals. No one could be found worthy either with the power or the authority, or both, the power and the authority, to take that scroll and open it up. And, and as we looked at the meaning of scrolls and seals and things, the conclusion that at least I had come to was this was God's will, as in testament. You know, this, the only reason Jesus was the one able to open it is because he's the heir. Okay? So here we have Jesus has just taken the scroll from God and has begun to open the seals. Revelation 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, that's one of those cherubim, saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The breaking of this first seal, I think, coincides with the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. I think it coincides with the beginning of the 70th week from Daniel. Doesn't say that here, but... I believe that this is the spiritual side of what's happening physically on earth. It makes sense to me that in God's you know, will and testament where he transfers dominion and power to Christ, where Christ finally receives his inheritance, it makes sense to me that the seals that are broken are spiritual in nature. Okay, that they're talking about the power and the authority that's happening. It's kind of the heaven vision. Remember in Daniel where we looked at heaven versus earth? That's how I interpret the first seven seals. This is what's happening in heaven. And then I think the trumpets and the bold judgments give us more about how that plays out on earth. All right. I don't see these as happening sequentially. I see them as happening basically concurrently, even though they're written in such a way that you can read them sequentially if you, if you want to. All right? so I'm, but I'm going to interpret them in this class as the seven seals being the heaven version of this and the other two sets being kind of what's happening on earth. The first four seals are what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Most men think, that, think that's players from Notre Dame. But, you know, <laughs> but, but it's really not. It comes from here. And each of the first four horsemen are released by the four cherubim. Each cherubim, each cherub releases one of these horsemen. The first horseman is a conqueror. He's riding a white horse, which is what Roman conquerors did back then. Okay. He's wearing a Stephanos, a crown of a victor. 
And many commentators put a lot of stock into the fact that he was given a bow and nobody said he was given arrows. Scripture is full of references to bows as weapons of war. The arrows are given. You know, it's like he had a gun. Well, you never think he had a gun and no bullets, you know. So I think saying that that he's given power but no authority is a stretch. But people believe that because the second horseman that we get to clearly does have power. So... You can go either way with that. What was the name again of the first horseman? He doesn't have a name. He's a conqueror. He's a conqueror. There's also significance in the fact that he's riding a horse. In Scripture, I, as you know, there's tons of references to horses. Every single reference to a horse is in the context of war. With one exception in Isaiah, where the reference is to a horse being used to, to pull a threshing cart. With that one exception, oxen are what are used in household and domestic tasks back then. Horses, only the elite could afford horses, and they were used for, for war. They were owned by the government. Okay. So it's, it's very significant that he's riding a white horse. He's wearing a crown, and he's, and he's got a weapon of war, a bow, and presumably arrows. Now, if you think back to what actually starts the 70th week, according to Daniel, what starts it on earth? What's the event that starts the 70th week? Does anybody remember? The Antichrist signs a covenant with the many. Remember? And, and if you look, I think I put it in your scripture references. Daniel 9.27 is the reference where he, he's going to make a covenant, firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, what's his first act? Look at Daniel 11.21. What's the first thing it says he does? First it says, he will be succeeded, this is the old king, by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. And it goes on to talk about how he plots to overthrow uh, fortresses. Altogether, I think what's being said here is that covenant with the many and the rise to power through deceit and intrigue are all in the first part of, of the Antichrist reign. Okay, the beginning, it marks the beginning of the 70th week. This first seal is where he's being given the power. I don't see, many people identify the conqueror on this horse as the Antichrist. You can, you can certainly say that, but I think it's, it's a better interpretation to say this is the power being given to the Antichrist. Okay? As opposed to a personification of him. So then, look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. This is Christ, not Christ, this is Paul talking about the second coming of Christ and saying, you know, don't worry about 
missing it because a whole lot of things have to happen before Christ comes. He says the apostasy comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, etc. So he takes his seat in the temple of God as being God. Obviously, this is the Antichrist from what we know from Daniel. And then he goes on to say something very interesting. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. That's saying that, that this lawless one is somehow being restrained now. That he exists right now. But is being restrained. And at some point he will be released. I think he's being released with the opening of that first seal. Then it goes on to say that this Antichrist, the, this person, is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. And on to say, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. For God will send upon them a deluding influence, so they will believe what is false. People are going to have hardened their hearts. And Christ even said that to them. If you look at John 5.43, it says, I came to you in the name of the Father, and you rejected me. But someday, someone's going to come, and he's, he's going to come only in his own name, and you're going to welcome him with open arms. Okay. And that's what's happening. People harden their hearts, and God says, Okay, do it your way. <laughs> and... And allows them to be deceived. I mean, he uses their hardness of heart. He sends a deluding influence so that they will believe what's false. It's very awful kind of punishment to get what you ask for, huh? God is not sending that deluding influence on believers. It's important to know that. God, nev- his intent is never to deceive you. Okay. These people have already chosen to be deceived, to reject him. They know better. Okay. They've chosen to reject him. Now, some people believe, and it's a common interpretation, that the one restraining the Antichrist right now is the Holy Spirit. And that when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit goes to heaven with the church, leaves earth to our own devices. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is released and is free to operate without the restraint of the Holy Spirit or the church on earth. You know my position on that. You know, I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to leave the earth and leave the... Because there will... It is absolutely scriptural. There will be believers here on earth during that time. People are converted during that time. Even if the church leaves... You know, people who do believe the ra- in the rapture or an early rapture do recognize the fact that it's scriptural that believers will be converted during this time and will be on earth. I just you know, some people know that we haven't accepted it and when it's that's when right. People are raptured. They look around and go, Damn it. "Yeah, missed it." That's right. People people have it intellectually, but they don't have it in their hearts. And those people are certainly on the bubble to, to convert quickly once they see these, these prophecies happening. Plus, we'll study about the 144,000 who, who will be anointed. And, you know, there's, there's just a ton of scripture in Revelation about the fact the gospel will continue to be spread. 
one way or another. I just have a hard time believing the Holy Spirit's not going to be here. He was here during the Old Testament times. He became indwelling during the New Testament times. I don't think he goes anywhere. Okay. But that is, that is one of the interpretations. At any, at any rate, Paul doesn't say who is restraining the Antichrist. Okay? So you can't be dogmatic about saying it's the Holy Spirit. You, can't, you just doesn't say that anywhere. The Antichrist, you believe, is here now? It, he, the scripture right here says he, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In fact, if you look at verse 6, right after he taught, in verses 3, 4, and 5, he talks about the Antichrist coming. The man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. And he says, don't you remember I told you that you know what restrains him now? Is the next verse. So that implies that he does exist and is being restrained. It says that. She's that in context of what the Bible times or not necessarily what's now. Could be. I don't know where he would go if he, he was being restrained. If the Antichrist existed in the New Testament and he's being restrained. He's theoretically still exists and is being restrained. He's not a living human being, if that's true. Right. (laughs) Is that the question? Is he a living human being? No, 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 no. no. I don't see how he could be a living human being. Uh, But the spirit, it says the man of lawlessness, that spirit certainly exists somewhere. And spiritually, that exists. And it is being restrained somehow. Okay. He will be a human. And we're going to study that part when we get to the second story, when we talk about the power struggle between good and evil, because he definitely going to be human. Sorry for the confusion. So anyway, I don't think, you know, the church has to be raptured. I don't think, even if it is the Holy Spirit restraining him, I don't think the church has to be raptured in order for the Holy Spirit to let him go. You know, I just think it has to be time in God's time for him to be let go. So let's look at verse 3. We're going to break the second seal. When Christ broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now we... Again, I think this is the power being given to the Antichrist to take peace from the whole earth. I think it's not just given to the Antichrist. I think it's everybody on earth is now free to have war without peace. Okay? I don't think it's particularly focused, the power in, in the hands of the Antichrist here. We do know that the Antichrist worships a god of fortresses. Daniel told us that. We do know he goes on a huge military campaign. That's outlined in great detail in Daniel. We know that at this time, we know from Daniel, the world has come under a world government of ten, quote, kingdoms, ten ten divisions. That the Antichrist rises up out out from those divisions, conquers three of those kings, although... They appear to still exist. They appear to be under his direct dominion. But we know that he doesn't conquer the other seven, right? And we know from Daniel that he continues to have wars. And the, even, and the Antichrist, even in all his power, awesome power, continues to be challenged by kings around the world. So this description of wars in Daniel 11 
is entirely consistent with the breaking of the second seal. Okay? So you can see how we're starting to see here's what's happening in heaven, here's what's happening on earth. Okay? Look at the third seal. Revelation 6, verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil or wine. In the Olivet Discourse, which is called that because Jesus was sitting on that mountain, and they don't say in Matthew 24, because it's actually one of those sermons that's recorded in all the Synoptic Gospels. So you refer to it as the Olivet Discourse, because you're going to pull from all of the Synoptic Gospels to put the message together. Well, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew is, is where I generally pull the information because it's the most complete version. But in Matthew 24, 7, Christ teaches this exact sequence of events. He says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So he places it at the beginning, right, of the end. He says there's going to be war and then there's going to be famine. The color of the horses is significant. In the first color, it was the white of the conqueror. The second color was red, blood, war. You know, that one's kind of intuitive, right? The third color of black is associated with famine in the scripture. Look at Lamentations 5. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Many translations don't put the word black in there, but I did go and look at the original Hebrew, and the word is in there. And I don't know if you've ever seen starving people, but black is a very appropriate color for this horse, this horse of famine. Now, famine... And the disruption of the world economy are also a natural consequence of war. Right? We see that over and over in history. It makes sense that the judgment would be a judgment of unheard of inflation. In the notes to uh, my NIV study Bible, um, Denarius is buying a quart of wheat, which is, which is one day's, one meal, not one day, one meal for one person. And a denarius would be a full day's wages. Is that what yours says? Okay, good. So it's what it's saying is you're working a whole day for one for one meal for one person. You're not feeding a family. You're not even feeding yourself on that. It says the barley everywhere says is a less nutritious grain than wheat is, that's why we don't eat barley bread so much as we eat wheat bread, that they can buy more barley, you know, enough to fill your tummy, but you're still not getting the nutrition. The, the, the NIV, if you look at the notes, it says that this is the equivalent of in ten, inflation of 10 times the, the prices that would be normal. If I did my math right, that's a thousand percent inflation. That's incredible, huh? Now, the 
the tough part is in the second part. What is this about the oil and the wine? It says don't harm the oil or the wine. Everybody has a different idea on what this one means. One idea is in the NIV study notes, it says, well, what that means is the drought that comes and causes the famine will be temporary in duration. It will wipe out the grains, but it won't wipe out the, the olive trees and the grapevines because they have deeper roots. That's pretty creative, <laughs> I think. And that is a reasonable interpretation. It doesn't say, so everybody's speculating. This, another one that I read said, well, what this means is people can only afford to buy the necessities and they can't afford to buy oil and wine during this time period. That, that makes sense. And I read my grandfather's notes on this, and he didn't, a lot of times he'll, his notes are like my notes. They're a compilation of what a lot of people have said, plus a lot of original thought and prayer. And he doesn't always tell me in these notes whether he's quoting somebody else or whether he just thought this. So I, if, if this is a quote from somebody else, I wish they'd just let, call me up and let me know, because I, I don't know where this came from or whether he just thought of this. But his interpretation of this was that there will be an increasing disparity between the poor and the rich in the end times. And that increasing numbers of people will be poor and subject to the inflation, the famine, the impact of this. But that the elite who can afford the oil and the wine will become fewer and fewer in number, thus setting the stage for some of the events at the end. Now, I, this was 35 years ago he wrote this, and I definitely see those trends happening today. I don't know if that's what this means, okay. but that's a third option. So you can, you can decide whatever you want. But you know what? The thing, we're going to read a lot of stuff. We don't know what it means in Revelation, but it will become clear to us when it starts happening. It will make sense. The fourth seal, verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen, or a pale horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The color of the horse makes sense intuitively, just like like the color of war, the color of death would be pale. The consequences of the war and the famine that we saw earlier, obviously, would be widespread death. So in terms of one horseman following another, these all make a great deal of sense. There is no indication in Scripture as to whether these seals are broken rapidly in succession, all at once, or if there are delays in between them. The attacks by wild beasts make a lot of sense because if man is starving, the beasts are starving as well. What we cannot tell is about the fourth of the earth that's being destroyed. It says, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Does that mean a fourth of the earth geographically? 
and within that geographic slice of the earth they were given authority to kill or does it mean that over the whole earth they were given authority to kill a fourth of the population doesn't really say if if it is a fourth of the population by today's standards that would be 1.6 billion people that is more than the population of China and the US put together it seems to me it probably because of the way it's phrased it probably makes more sense that it's a geographical limitation perhaps to the region where the you know antichrist is having all his wars there in the middle east it doesn't say they're going to kill a fourth of the population it says they have the authority over a fourth of the earth to to do these things so we don't you can't really do the math here god's not going to be pinned down by the math the next seal the fifth seal is in verse 9 when the lamb broke the fifth seal i saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained and they cried out with a loud voice saying how long O Lord holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth and there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also this is very interesting because if you read that carefully you don't know what the judgment is what's the judgment it doesn't say there is a fifth seal and it is a delayed judgment it says what it's going to be is God avenging the death of the martyrs whatever it is it's going to be pretty terrible but it does not say what it is. It just says it's going to be delayed. And one commentator I read had a very interesting point, And that was that these martyrs, it doesn't say whether they're the martyrs of all time or whatever. But he's, he thinks these are the martyrs coming out of the great tribulation. And the reason he thinks that is because they want vengeance on people who are still alive on the earth. That's a very interesting point. That makes sense, huh? Pardon? Yeah. And a lot of people don't read it like that. A lot of people say, well, these are all the martyrs from all of time who want vengeance. But it says, and, and you could read it to say that they're saying for the people who dwell on earth in a, as being the wicked in general. Okay. You can interpret it either way. But it, I thought it was a very interesting point. We know from Daniel that there will be a great deal of martyrdom during the Great Tribulation. In Daniel 8.23, it says, In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. And we know from our studies that's the Antichrist. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. We're going to find that out later. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. Definitely going to be martyrdom. Then in chapter 11, later on in Daniel, there's even more detail about how it happens. At the appointed time, the Antichrist, this is in uh, verse 29 of chapter 11. The Antichrist will invade the south again, that's Egypt, 
but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And according to Jesus, that's when the Great Tribulation starts. That's the midpoint of the seven years, the last seven years. That's three and a half years into it. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. That's us. If we're alive when this happens, that's us. We are going to count our lives as nothing. We are going to be glad to become martyrs. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And when they fall, they will receive little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the end of time. Until the time of the end, I'm sorry. For it will still come at the appointed time. I think that's a wonderful promise. That if we are alive during that end time, if we do stand and somehow can't see it through to the end, even in our stumbling, God has made provision for us. He's going to come to our aid. He knows we're human. According to Daniel, this all occurs during the last half of the Great Tribulation, the last half of the 70th seven, just before the second coming. And it says in Daniel 7.24 that the Antichrist will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. And the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. And ultimately then, of course, the Antichrist will be destroyed when Christ comes a second time. The execution of this judgment of the fifth seal isn't going to happen until all of the martyrs have been killed, that are going to be killed. Therefore, by definition, you know it's got to be at the end, near the end of the Great Tribulation. In fact, I think there's going to be martyrs all the way up to the last second. So it seems to me... That this will not stop until the second coming. That, that the vengeance would have to be the last and terrible day of the Lord. And that's consistent with what we see in Daniel that says that Antichrist is given, being given power over the saints for three and a half years. And that three and a half years ends with the second coming of Christ. So I think this vengeance, this fifth seal can only happen. I, I can't see any other way for these all to work unless it's, it happens at the second coming. That brings us to the sixth seal. Verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Now. What event, at what event and only what event does every king, every slave, every knee on earth bow to the lamb? When he comes. That's the only time they all recognize him. I don't see how this could be anything but the events at the second coming. That's why I think these seals, one through six, give us the panorama of... Beginning to end this last time, the transfer of power begins with the release of the Antichrist and that power and ends with the second coming. Well, on what basis do you think that they're open at the same time? I know you have that opinion. I was just wondering. I, the question was, what's my basis for believing that all six seals are opened at the same time? I don't think I necessarily think that. I think that they may be opened during this whole time frame. They are not necessarily simultaneous. There's no reason they couldn't be simultaneous except because if they are the spiritual transfer of power, they could be opened at any time and then the actual events could occur in whatever sequence. On the other hand, if, if you think that they are opened as each event begins to occur, they could be opened basically sequentially throughout the last seven years and fit perfectly with the prophecies that we've seen so far. Another reason, just from re- aside from reading the text of that sixth seal, there are other prophecies, other judgments in Revelation, specifically the seventh and last judgment, which is the seventh plague or the seventh bowl of wrath. That uses the same language. And I, let's look at Revelation 16, verse 17. This is the very last of the 21 plagues, or 21 judgments. <laughs> then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And then there's a great big hailstorm after that. Now, that same phrase about the islands and the mountains was used in that sixth seal. Now, if my interpretation makes sense and those first six seals give us the overview and the, the trumpets and the plagues give us the actual outworking of that, then it makes sense that the very last of those plagues or those judgments would equate to the day of the Lord, which would equate to that sixth seal. Okay? So that's kind of another reason why I, that's not kind of, that is another reason why I'm interpreting it like it is. 
What I did was I just wrote all of Revelation, pretty much the events, out on note cards and begin and began to anchor pieces together as I could as I could tell they were talking about the same event, and that's you know where I, where I came up with this. Uh, where is Babylon today? Babylon, the question was, where is Babylon today? Do you know that Babylon is just outside of the capital of Iraq? It is like 30 miles. I mean, it's like just outside. It's on, in fact, there's a train stop there, but that's all that it is. Um, It's not a city, per se. That's where it was. That's where it's always been. That's where I think it still will be at this time. And we're going to learn a lot about Babylon when we go through the power struggle between God and Satan, because this is a Babylon has a symbolic as well as a as a literal meaning in Revelation. Now, another place that I find similar is where it talks about the sky being split apart like a scroll, and and we all know that hymn, or maybe not everybody, but I, certainly it comes to to mind the hymn that says the sky will be rolled back like a scroll. And, and everybody will see Christ, right? There, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, there is a terrific passage that does talk about, you know, we're looking forward to the day when the heavens and the earth pass away. And, and I highlighted for you the part where it says the heavens will pass away. I think that's what it's saying when it says the sky is splitting apart like a scroll and all the... You know, stars are falling out of the sky and the sun turns dark. I think that's what it's talking about. <laughs> Heaven and earth are passing away. Chicken little be right. Chicken little be right there. That's right. That's sure what it sounds like to me on a, on a um, reading of the interpretation. But this passage in Second Peter, which we're going to read together in a second, I believe speaks to the to the point that people say. How can we look forward to this day? How can we look forward to Christ's coming if all this horrible stuff has to happen first? Can't we just skip it? Can't we be raptured and then we can look forward to it while we're in heaven? You know, And that's not what I see said in this passage. If you know anything about Paul, certainly he said, Everything I have here on earth, even the riches I have on earth, I count as loss compared to the riches I have in Christ. The reason that we can look forward to Christ's coming, even with all this horrible stuff happening, is because our inheritance and our blessing is not in the physical. It's in Him. It's in Christ wherever He is. So read what it says. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. This is Peter talking. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat but according to his promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you look for these things be diligent to be found by him in peace spotless and blameless that's pretty clear that we should be looking forward to the coming of God even if it means these cataclysmic events are happening to us the seventh seal you have to skip forward to chapter 8 now the seventh seal I believe is basically when it's it's the it is done seal (laughs) it's the it is finished seal now the scroll is opened and, and, the, and the, the transfer of power has occurred. It's the final moment. Now, the way that it reads, the seventh seal does have all those elements in it. But then it opens the next sets of judgments, which are the seven trumpets, which then the seventh of the trumpets opens the seven bowls of wrath. So they're kind of nesting in each other. So let's read what it says. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's amazing. Heaven is a very noisy place. Heaven is full of praise of God constantly. It says it never ceases. And yet when the seventh seal is broken and it is finished, literally, there is silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a gold censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Look where our prayers go, straight to the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. This hurling to earth is where again I anchor the fact that we've gone through the vision of what's happening spiritually and now they're going to tell us what's happening on earth Okay, that's why I think that you're free to think that this all happens serially and then they hurled to earth and then the trumpets happen but I don't see how you can think that and then figure out what to do with that sixth seal Okay, because that sixth seal sounds like the day of the Lord to me So, first trumpet. The first sounded, this is in Revelation 8-7, And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. doesn't say whether it's scattered around the whole world or a particular geographic area. The second trumpet, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown in the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Could that be a volcano? 
erupting? That would make sense. Did the results just look like blood to John, or was it really blood? We know in the ten plagues of Egypt, the Nile turned to really blood. So, it, you know, it's hard to tell from how it's, how it's read, but certainly it says a third of the sea is going to turn to blood. Now, if that happened, definitely a third of the life in the sea would die. Okay, and a third of the ships are, are destroyed one way or another. The third trumpet. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. This is it's falling on the fresh water sources here. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood meaning bitter. Now, we know from our previous studies that stars are a little harder to interpret because there can be Stars in the heavens that are the physical stars. And there are stars in heaven which are spiritual beings that have choices. Okay, And we know from Daniel that the Antichrist actually influenced some of those spiritual beings in heaven. And causes them to fall to earth. Now the fact that this star is a great star. Fell from heaven, not the heavens. And has a name makes me think this is a spiritual being who is being given authority or has the impact simply by who he is of causing, when he falls, these fresh waters to become bitter. Now, if I think he physically is making the fresh water bitter, bitter, it doesn't, bitter is a different word than poison, but it seems to have the same effect, Right? That people are poisoned somehow. If I believe that it's a spiritual star falling on the physical fresh water and causing them to be poisoned, I've kind of split my metaphor in the middle, haven't I? Between the physical and the spiritual. Another way to look at it would be that this whole judgment is being expressed in spiritual terms. You could say that this star is bitterness. And he is falling in such a way that the peacemakers are no longer heard. The springs of living water, if you will. That, in fact, there's a verse in James 3, verse 8, starting in verse 8, that says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth came both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? So that's a kind of a, a spiritual, a look at the, a metaphor of water, of fresh and bitter water from a spiritual point of view. It's entirely possible that this angel causes men to only be able to speak bitterness and therefore the Peacemakers are not heard and many men die. That is another way to look at this. It could also mean a third of the fresh water supplies are poisoned and people die. Okay, We don't know, but we need to keep our minds open to the possibilities so we recognize it when it happens. The fourth trumpet. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it. 
and the night in the same way. Now, this is talking very physical kind of stuff. Obviously, the day and the night, and you're not having light. That seems to be very physical, as opposed to the previous trumpet, which seemed to have some spiritual kind of connotations. This, to me, this makes me think of Norway and Sweden, right? Where for six months out of the year, you've got mostly night. I think that's what this is saying, except it's going to be worldwide. The world will become colder, presumably. Some of the things that happen to the earth, it's hard to understand from a scientific point of view how they could happen and anybody could still live. Well, I think maybe some of the point is at the end, people aren't still living. But, but, but this is one of them where just like we're having global warming now, this seems to imply we're going to have a global cooling all of a sudden. Okay. Because for a third of the day and a third of the night, there's going to be no light. The last three trumpets are called the woe judgments, and they are truly terrible. Verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Okay, so obviously this is a, a spiritual star, right? This is an angel. He opened the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit here is the abyss. We did some technical work on that, so we know that the abyss is where evil spirits are kept, right? Hades was where men were. The abyss was where the the evil spirits were being restrained. The smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing nor any tree but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Now, if you look back, this angel is given the key to the abyss. Who holds the key to the abyss now? Do we know? We, we know from the first part of Revelation. Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys to anything that needs to be open and anything that needs to be shut. So this key has to have been passed to this angel for this purpose. We're going to read more about the seal of men when we do the big power struggle. But... Suffice it to say, this, thank goodness, is one of those judgments that's individual in application and the believers are specifically excluded from it. All right? He's told not to hurt those who are sealed by God. Men want to commit suicide but cannot. Does that mean they're too weak to get up and commit suicide? Does it mean that this plague happens at the same time as some of the other ones? Some of the other plagues have darkness in them. Is it maybe nobody can see to get to the stuff they need to kill themselves? You know, it doesn't exactly say physically how this works. But it's very interesting. 
the the next few verses, um, and and we will we are we will stop after the next couple of verses, because John calls these demons locusts. They look nothing whatsoever like locusts. Read what they look like. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their tails in and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both of those mean destroyer or destruction. Now, that doesn't sound like any locust I ever saw in my yard. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even sound like a locust at all. You know, what, it, what, but John lived in an area of the world that is impacted by swarms of locusts. If you look out on the web as to where, and NASA has some information out there about locusts, and it has like this geographic thing. It's all across the northern part of Africa, all of the Saudi, the, um, the, Saudi or all of Saudi Arabia. And then there's kind of a lesser area that kind of encircles that. That would include the, the Holy Land and, you know, areas that John would be familiar with. Locusts, one swarm of locusts, according to NASA, can contain 15 to 30 million insects. They can eat their own body weight in one day. They can consume, one swarm can consume 423 million pounds of vegetation in a single day over an area of 460 square miles. I think the reason John calls them locusts is because of the huge number and the terror and the veracity of their appetite. I think that's why he respond, the word locusts came to mind when he saw these demons. The other thing I want to put, the very last thing I want to tell you today, we're running five minutes over, is that you will hear people say, "Ah, these aren't demons, these are Apache helicopters. Because they got the sound of the, their wings make the sound of the, you know, rushing horses and the chariots and the sting is in the tails. You know, that's where they're baloney again. For one thing, Apache helicopters don't come from the abyss. They come from airports. I don't know last time you checked. (laughs) <laughs> but, but, but these are clearly demonic if you've you know, done any reading about what the abyss means and what is in it. And they are going to only attack unbelievers. I don't know how an Apache helicopter is going to know the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Okay. So we'll stop there. We'll finish the sixth trumpet um, next week. It's just a little bit that we have left to do. Now we're not going to do the seven fold judgments. We're not going to do those because those are so severe and because we know that they are sequential and they are anchored at the end of the period of time, we're going to put those in sequentially where they go, chronologically where they go in the story.